Now that the Easter season is over, we're going to be returning to our series in the book of Acts. And today we are on uh, Acts chapter 13, and we'll look at verses uh, 1 through 12. This is God's word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. <coughs> uh, the Holy Spirit uh, spoke to um, you know, these men gathering for, I guess, a simple worship or prayer meeting. And uh, uh, they heard uh, the Spirit speaking to them. And it gave them direction and guidance. And likewise, I pray that uh, through your word, your Spirit would speak to us uh, in powerful ways. And uh, help us to uh, be in tune and sensitive to um, the things that you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're coming back to the book of Acts, which is actually a very appropriate book to look at after the season of Easter because essentially Acts tells us what happens after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension. And the most important thing that happens is probably that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit who animates the church to move, to grow, as this mechanism to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the entire world. Uh, But there's another important innovation that occurs after Jesus' resurrection, and it is this. Salvation is now extended beyond the people of Israel to the nations, to the Gentiles. And uh, I think most of us, if not all of us, are a fruit of that. And this chapter is somewhat a turning point because now, uh, if you remember like Pastor Fred's last sermon, it was like kind of the end of, Uh, Peter's ministry, but now there's like this turning point where it begins to focus on Paul's missionary journeys and uh, his journeys to the other nations. And one of the things that you realize about the book of Acts is, and I would say perhaps about the dynamics of the Holy Spirit, is there's like constant movement. Uh, Things don't really remain the same. Uh, (coughs) I don't expect like the the youth guys to have uh, seen Jason Bourne movies. Okay, good. It's like very violent. <laughs> but if you've seen Jason Bourne movies, um, 
I don't know. I remember just watching it in a movie theater and like getting kind of nauseous because the way it's like filmed, it like uh, the camera is like always moving and she and, and I think it's meant to like communicate like his life is like always on the move and his life is like kind of chaotic. But when I look at the Book of Acts, uh, it kind of reminds me of like. Jason Bourne movies, or maybe even Mission Impossible movies, where like Tom Cruise is going to all these like different countries, and uh, he's like always on the run or always on the move. And uh, Pastor Fred, um, a couple weeks ago, had this great image that I just couldn't get out of my head. But it was like this image of a wave pool, and he said uh, sometimes we think we're supposed to, you know, generate the waves and create the movement, but in actuality, God is the one who does that. And essentially, what we do is we kind of like jump in the pool and we allow like God's movement. We allow these waves to kind of move us and push us in the direction that God is moving, and that makes us a little bit different from like the audience who's watching a Mission Impossible movie or a Jason Bourne movie. Because on the one hand, it does require us to actively engage because we we actually have to jump in the water and kind of submit to the moving uh, or to the direction of what God is doing, and uh, we have to. Kind of in a passive way, allow these waves to move us and not go against the current. I think we could say one of the things about Christianity that was uh, unique, maybe compared to um, ancient faiths, is that uh, it is largely characterized by a lot of movement. Now, I read this book uh, when I was in uh, school a, a while ago, and it's by this scholar named uh, Harvey Cox. He teaches at Harvard Divinity, and he wrote this book called *The Secular City*. And one of the things that characterize him is he actually sees like a lot of positives about the city. So at the time, a lot, a lot of people were writing like negative things about the city, uh, but he's like, no, the the city is actually very good. Um, it's not just like a place filled with evil and sin. And he had this contrarian view that cities actually uh, reflect God's goodness in many ways. And I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but I, I did think he had a very interesting perspective when it came to this idea of movement or mobility. And uh, hypermobility is something that's a reality, and we, uh, if you've been in the city for a long time, you've experienced it because it's a very transient city, and uh, all of us have, uh, you know, experienced people and friends uh, moving and coworkers moving away and uh, new people coming in and meeting new people and all those kinds of things. And a lot of people, for the most part, was like, "Oh, mobili- mobility and hypermobility is like such a negative thing." But what Harvey Cox does is he looks at mobility and he he tries to reflect on it positively, and he says, "Well, actually, if you really think about it,、uh, the God in the Old Testament, one of the things that characterized God is he was mobile. God continually moved throughout Israel's nomadic wilderness journey, and that movement was signified by the movement of the covenant,、uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And by contrast, he says, you know, if you look at the ancient gods like、uh, Baal of Canaan." They were largely immobile gods, and they were sedentary gods, and they were、uh, gods that inhabited a particular territory. And I guess you could say that about the God of Israel.、Um, maybe during the temple period in Jerusalem, that、uh, God was immobile there because God's presence laid in the temple in Jerusalem. But that period actually doesn't last very long because、uh, the temple is eventually destroyed and the people are exiled. And then when you get to the New Testament. <coughs> What you find is God is on the move again. Jesus dies on the cross. The people of God now become this new temple, where now God inhabits His people in the midst of His church, and therefore the church is always on the move, because God is always on the move. The church is always changing throughout history, 
because God is always moving throughout history. And the thing about movement is movement creates a lot of tension, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, if there is movement, it does display some kind of life and vitality. On the other hand, movement creates challenges. Movement changes things. If you observe kids, and if you, have a, if you are a parent with like, young kids, uh, I almost guarantee that this is something you experience, but sometimes young kids struggle to like, sit still. So if like, you're at dinner, uh, dinner time, uh, like one of my kids cannot sit still. It's just like moving all over, takes a bite. Ah, ah, go to another chair. Ah, sit down, right? Stop moving. Finish your dinner, right? And if you're a parent, that's like, that can be a very frustrating experience during dinner time uh, or maybe even during the church service. <laughs> you want your child to sit still. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's, it's, it can be very frustrating when there's a lot of movement. But on the other hand, movement signals like something positive, right? The child is alive. The ch- there's vitality in the child. The child has a lot of energy. And so I think movement kind of creates this kind of tension between like life and vitality on the one hand, but then it creates challenges and frustrations on the other. And I think you could say the same kind of tension exists between like a traditional approach versus like a more progressive approach. Uh, a traditional approach wants things to re- like remain static while a progressive approach wants things to like move forward. Uh, if you're stuck in tradition and things remain the same, uh, it can feel like there's a lack of vitality and therefore uh, you have this t- like tension between people who you know want things to change and want things to move forward and progress versus people who like want things to be the way that they were and things to be static and uh, often I mean even in my parents' church that was uh, growing up that was like a constant tension because some people just wanted to sing traditional hymns and then other people wanted to sing some of the more contemporary praise and worship movement so there's always like that tension and uh, if uh, things are dynamic then. It is a good thing. It means like there is movement, even in your, I don't know, lives and your careers. If there's uh, movement in your careers, then it feels like your career is alive. But if there's movement in your careers, it can feel like it disrupts other parts of life of your life. Maybe you have to work more hours. Maybe there's more stress. Um, maybe it uh, changes your schedule. Maybe there's more responsibility. Maybe <coughs> you have to move. What, like whatever it is. So again, that tension between things uh, being the same and things being challenging. Now, I think we can also say the same thing about uh, this missional dimension of the church. And uh, I guess one of the things I've been trying to impress is like mission, mission is incredibly important for the church. And if a church doesn't have a mission, if a church is not engaged in mission, um, then I don't think it can be a faithful church. Uh, mission, it does create the sense of vitality. And especially if the Holy Spirit is producing uh, a lot of fruit through the labors of the church, then the church feels very alive, very much uh, vital. And one of the reasons why I, revival movements are so interesting to me personally is because it just kind of shows like how God is moving uh, throughout a time or throughout a people. And on the other hand, I would also say mission creates challenges and it does disrupt things. It does disrupt status quo. One of the challenges of the early church, they experienced it too. Uh, and really any kind of like cross-cultural missionary endeavor uh, when you uh, share the gospel or proclaim the gospel, and then when people receive that gospel, it always causes some kind of disturbance. So for the early Jews <coughs> who became believers, they understood circumcision to be uh, a very important sign and a very important part of their identity. And yet, when the gospel now goes to the Gentiles, there's this like, 
big controversy over, well, if somebody decides to become a Christian, do they need to be circumcised like the Jewish people, right? Um, I think in uh, South Korea, when the gospel went to South Korea, I think there was, like South Koreans had this uh, practice of ancestor worship and praying to your ancestors. And I think in uh, South Korean churches, there was always like that tension of like, well, that doesn't seem to comport with like a Christian understanding of worshiping God alone. Uh, but then on the un- other hand, this is like our culture, this is our tradition. So, right, there's a, a conflict there. In the West, I think a lot of modern values are now in opposition to the biblical perspective. And I would expect if there's going to be some kind of missionary encounter with the secular West, it is going to create tension and conflict. Truth be told, that's probably why a lot of churches shy away from engaging in mission. It's not comfortable, right? Uh, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want that tension. We don't want that conflict. And therefore, it's so easy to exchange uh, a sense of mission and missional vitality for that which is familiar and that which makes us feel secure. And in order to overcome that, I do think we need a deep passion for Jesus himself, which we have access to through the gospel. And when we are changed by the love of God through a crucified Christ, it does have the power to ignite a passion for him. But I think this passage also shows us something else we need. And that is very simply, we need to hear from the Holy Spirit and we need to know his direction. The setting of the chapter begins by telling us that some of the church leaders at Antioch, what are they doing? They are worshiping the Lord and they are fasting. And Antioch is one of the key churches that reached the Gentile world, one of the key sending churches that would reach the nations. And Luke also makes note of like, who is part of this very small, uh, let's just call it a prayer meeting, right? You have uh, Barnabas, you have Simeon, who is called Niger, you have Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, Saul. Uh, you have these five men, and you kind of wonder, like, why is uh, the author kind of listing all these people who were present at this meeting? And I think the point that the author is making, especially as we make this turning point towards reaching the Gentiles, is these men were from different cultures, right? These men were not all from the same culture, and it's kind of a foreshadowing of God's plan for his church. God's plan was to expand the scope of his people beyond just the people of Israel, now to the rest of the world, to all nations, to make salvation available to all people, all cultures. And the church in Antioch was uh, an early picture of that. While these men are worshiping and fasting, they hear the Holy Spirit say, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after that, what they do is they lay hands on them and they send them off. I find this story to be very interesting for a few reasons. Uh, First, Uh, I find it to be interesting because, if you notice, there isn't actually anything extraordinary about what they're doing here. All they're doing is engaging in the very ordinary spiritual practices of worship and prayer and fasting. Uh, They weren't here gathering to discuss, like, strategy or operations. Uh, I don't even get the sense that they gathered to even hear what the Spirit had to say to them. They simply gathered to worship the Lord, and in that context, the Spirit spoke to them and they heard what God wanted them to do. I've heard someone define revival as basically it's, uh, it's an extraordinary work of God, oftentimes through these ordinary means. Uh, during the Great Awakening, and the Great Awakening was a period of revival that took place in American history in the 18th century, 
Uh, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who wrote about these revivals, and he called it the surprising work of God. It caught them by surprise, right? Some of the great preachers during the Great Awakening, uh, like which was, right, um, I guess which you could say sparked these series of revivals, were people like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And so I was a history major when I went to college, and I said, oh, man, uh, the, the Great Awakening is such a fascinating period. I wonder, like, what kind of sermons, like, sparked these revivals. So uh, as I was learning about it in my history class, I was like, let me go try to find some of these sermons. And so I did. I looked up sermons from, like, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, and I remember reading it in the library when I was at Rutgers and being somewhat disappointed <laughs> after reading the sermons, right? Because I was like, wow. Uh, these sermons aren't that special at all, right? It didn't do anything for my soul. Uh, But it seems to be the pattern of how God works. The Spirit uses very ordinary practices of worship, fasting, and prayer, very ordinary people, and very ordinary sermons to do some extraordinary things. Second thing I found to be interesting and fascinating, the Spirit (coughs) is ultimately the one who calls them. Uh, In a lot of church Literature, people use this uh, word apostolic to describe one of the gifts that people have. And oftentimes when uh, one of the descriptors that you see when someone is called apostolic is uh, it's a type of person who is very entrepreneurial. And I think I know why people use that word to describe someone who is apostolic because you often see apostolic people going out and like creating something that was not previously there. They typically are like the church planters. And so when Paul goes to these different cities, right, there's, there's nothing there established before. He plants a church for anew where there was none. And that's what entrepreneurs do for business. They create a business. They create companies where previously there were none. And I don't have a major problem with that comparison. But I do wonder if by using the word entrepreneur as a descriptive of someone who is apostolic, uh, I do wonder if it also conveys maybe someone who is self-made and someone who is great at starting things. And I do think that goes a little bit against what it means to be apostolic, because even the Greek root itself of the word apostle means one who is sent. And so this idea of, and by the way, the word missionary too comes from the Latin root word for like sending, right? One who is sent. And so uh, these words imply something. It's not just somebody saying, hey, I have an idea and I want to go do this, but it actually implies there is a call of God and the Spirit is speaking and the Spirit is the one who is sending. This passage uh, also makes clear, oh, and by the way, when we ordain people, I guess that's kind of what we're doing. We're confirming the Spirit's work as a church when we lay hands on people and we send them out. That's that's what an ordination uh, is. Um, We're saying, yes, we can confirm that Truly, the Holy Spirit is doing this work and sending uh, this person out for this particular ministry. Uh, The third thing I find fascinating here is Paul and Barnabas are the ones who are sent out. And the reason why I find that fascinating is this. Uh, What we've learned in the book of Acts up to this point is like Paul and Barnabas were very important uh, members of the early church. Paul, I would say this, Paul's ministry probably wouldn't have existed had it not been for Barnabas, because Barnabas is the one who kind of bridged, you know, remember Paul used to kill Christians and persecute them? Uh, Barnabas was the one who, like, bridged, like, the other believers who distrusted Paul and said, hey, like, no, God is really doing something through him. So I I would say Paul's ministry probably would not exist without Barnabas. 
And of course, Paul is one of the important leaders of the church. He's one of the great teachers of the early church, one of the great evangelists of the early church. And you think about it, if you were someone at Antioch, uh, these would be very difficult people to replace. Barnabas being known for his encouragement, Paul being known for his leadership and his teaching. Maybe Antioch would say, oh, we need these guys, right? We need to build up uh, the work that is going on here. And yet, the church sends them out. There's an interesting twist here in the Greek uh, when it comes to sending Paul and Barnabas. Uh, The English translation in verse 3 says, the church at Antioch sent them off. And uh, in the translation, you kind of miss the sense of what it's saying. Uh, The Greek word here is not actually the word that's typically used for send, uh, which I think is the word pempo in Greek. But the Greek word here is apaluo, which actually means to release or to set free, right? To release or to set free. What did the church at Antioch do? They released them. They set them free. Sometimes I think the way um, denominations and churches and sending organizations do it, it feels like sending someone means you control them, right? Uh, If you only send a person if they fit like your organization's agenda. But actually, the Greek word here is conveying a sense of letting them go to do what the Holy Spirit is calling them to do. And churches and organizations that really try to hold on to people and to control people, in actuality, may be working against the sending work of the Spirit. I think a church that has a heart to send is willing to release people to go where the Spirit is calling them to go. A church that wants to kind of like hold on to everybody and hold on to every member, I think can be a potential obstacle to the mission of the church. And if we are going to be a good sending church, then part of that means uh, we have to be good at releasing people and setting them free. And that's hard especially in a transient place like New York where relationships mean so much, especially long-term relationships. During spring break, uh, as I I think I mentioned previously, like my family, we went to Paris and uh, we we went to like a ton of museums and we went to the Louvre. And, uh, you know, we spent like so many hours at the Louvre, like looking at all the paintings. And I think I was was like the only one. I I wanted to leave. I was like tired, right? My legs hurt. Um, And we were about to leave and then... Uh, my wife was like, asked the kids, hey, do you want to go see the crown jewels? They're like, yeah. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> right? So we went to go see the crown jewels. And in these museums, you have like these like very valuable pieces there and like this huge diamond there just in one place. And they're housed as an exhibit. And uh, because they're housed as an exhibit, they re- rarely move. They, they are the attraction. People come to the Louvre to see these exhibits like the crown jewels. And... I think the church is not meant to be like that. The church is not meant to be like the crown jewels, a house or uh, in a museum for all people to come and to see. And by and large, that's been like the ministry model uh, in the U.S. Uh, for, for many, many decades. It's like, let's put on a good service and have people come to the church, right? It's like an attractional model. And uh, the expectation is like, oh, people will come to the church and hear the gospel, and that's where God will reach them. Uh, I think if probably, uh, at least if you look at the, uh, the dynamics of the early church, I don't think the church was actually meant to work like that. Uh, we've lived in a very unique time uh, that people call Christendom, where Christianity was like a dominant uh, or a more influential part of the culture and 
largely you can assume shared values and shared upbringing and shared experience with regard to understanding of God and faith and things like that. I don't think we're in that kind of time anymore or in that season anymore. Therefore, I think the church is actually supposed to be more like, uh, you know, like those, uh, you know, I just got into golf, so I'm thinking about like a lot of golf things and like, you know, to grow the grass, like they, they push these things and they put the seed in it and then like the seed like just spreads to grow the grass. And it's like in this constant movement, maybe it's like a football field, you just kind of go up and down, up and down, like spreading the seed so that the grass will grow. I actually think the church is supposed to be more like that, right? Uh, more like a seed spreader. And uh, some of those seeds will grow and will root itself in the soil. Some of them won't because uh, maybe the soil is bad or for whatever reason. That's what actually Jesus spoke about in the parable of the sower, right? When the word of God is proclaimed, some people will receive it, some people will reject it. You see that even in this passage, you have Elymas the magician opposed uh, the proclamation, opposed Paul and Barnabas, opposed their preaching, whereas the person who was with Elymas, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, ends up believing in the end, right? Whether the soil is good or bad is not really up for, the, for us to say or for the church to say, but it is up to the church to uh, obey the, the sending work of the Holy Spirit and to spread the seed of the word uh, because that's what the Spirit is doing, right? We are supposed to be a people in movement. After all, if you think about the nature of God himself, God is ascending God, right? The Father sent Jesus into the world to save us. Jesus was sent. That sending required Jesus to actually leave his seat of glory and to endure humiliation when he became human. That sending required Jesus to die upon a cross and for the Father's face to turn away. That sending was challenging, right? For God himself. Jesus also sends, though. Before he was to be crucified, he shares the last meal with his disciples. He tells them he is about to leave them and that they will be his witnesses. And can you imagine the thoughts that went through their heads? How can we continue uh, the work that you're doing? Uh, We are just ordinary men. We are tax collectors. We are fishermen. Uh, How are we supposed to do this? How does Jesus encourage them? He says, well, I will send you a, a counselor. I will send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and empower you and will enable you to extend the work of Christ, which they ultimately do to all nations. The Father sends the Son, who sends the Holy Spirit, and now the Spirit sends the church to bear witness to this crucified Christ and this resurrected Lord. God is a God, uh, God, is a God who sends. He is a sending God, and to the degree that he sends, we have to embrace his movement. We have to embrace his sending. Uh, we have to embrace all that, the challenges that come with that as well. Because, again, the church is not uh, a set of crown jewels on display. Uh, We're not saying come to us because we're so good. (laughs) But rather, we're like this little ordinary rinky-dinky seed spreader pushed with very ordinary strength, sometimes very slowly, up and down the field. 
and waiting for God to produce growth in the seeds that are spread through the proclamation of his gospel. I believe, and I'm not alone in this, everybody says this, right? (laughs) We are now in a spiritual climate where churches really have to be able to embrace movement. Uh, I think the kind of ministry that uh, puts on like a good church service and expects people to come and visit, it can grow, right? Those kind of churches can grow, but by and large, they grow because they attract other people who are already believers, who are looking for a good church service. Churches uh, that I think really deeply care about right, the mission of the church, about the gospel, about actually reaching people who have no opportunity to uh, hear the gospel, right? Pe- churches that are really passionate about that will have to embrace movement, the discomfort of movement, the constant change. And I think churches that are worshiping together, praying together, and fasting together will be better positioned and have a better sense of the sending work of the Holy Spirit. Churches that embrace the Spirit sending, I think will be better positioned to embrace his movement and the change that he brings. Um, you know, we met with uh, elders and deacons yesterday. I gave him uh, one article to read about like this idea of place. I didn't give him this other article because it was like 20 pages, so I'm going to quote it now, a, a piece of it. There was an article I read this week from Tim Keller, and basically it's about how the church can reach people with the gospel in the secular West and Uh, He's saying, like, you know, for several decades now, this is, like, not new information. For several decades, people have been making the comment that the spiritual climate has changed and is rapidly changing in the U.S., backed up by all these surveys where Christianity is in serious decline. And then he talks about this missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin, he was a a missionary from England. He was a British missionary who went to India. And he wrote a lot of books, and a lot of his books I had to read when I was in seminary, but he wrote a lot of books about how churches really need to recognize, like churches in the West, really need to recognize, hey, this is not like a Christian-dominant culture anymore, and uh, therefore, like, the models of ministry and how we understand, like, how to reach people really are not going to be effective anymore. And uh, the part that really got my attention in this article was this. Newbigin started saying this, like, 30 years ago, Right? And he's not the only one, but people have been saying this for decades. And by and large, most churches still have not adapted to this new context. So this is what Keller writes. He says this, But old habits die hard. The vast majority of churches continue to reflexively work as if there was still a cultural forecourt. Their ministries and messages implicitly still assume that non-believers will be brought brought by friends or will simply show up in church and understand what is being preached. Some may, but this will increasingly not be so. This is a lethal kind of spiritual blindness and is a contributing factor to the decline in the church that we are seeing now in the U.S. Um, now, he just, he's not the, say, the end-all, say-all of uh, the West. Uh, the West is obviously much more diverse, and all contexts are obviously much more um, different. But by and large, I would say the larger point of uh, if churches that continue to operate based on uh, what things were like 30 years ago uh, will not do well, are not doing well, uh, not in terms of number and size. Uh, that's, that's not irrelevant, but that's not the main point. In terms of impact, in terms of uh, spreading seed to where it needs to be planted. 
I, I think we have to be a church that embraces movement, change. Um, if we want to embrace mission, and most importantly, if we want to embrace um, the sending work of the Holy Spirit. And I hope that's something we care about. I can understand if it's something we don't care about uh, because none of us want to experience that change. It's hard. It's challenging. As Keller says, old habits die hard. And it does. Like I said in the beginning, I keep putting my phone in the same pocket. And uh, even though I know it's like ruining my jeans, it's hard to change, right? I'm going to keep putting my phone here. Uh, but the kingdom, Jesus himself, the gospel, is way bigger than like our personal desires. It has to be. It has to be. Um, the Holy Spirit moves probably much more than uh, we recognize. And how do we deal with like the changing circumstances of our lives? I think we anchor ourselves in a God who is unchanging because change is the only constant in life and God himself doesn't change. Uh, he, he is the one, the only one who can stabilize us when there's these constant waves in the wave pool, right? Uh, I guess if you, to go off of Pastor Fred's illustration, if like the wave pool is moving us and we're resistant to like going where uh, the pool is, the wave is moving us, we're going to like swim against the current to try to stay in one place and then we're going to get exhausted. <laughs> Easier and much more filling. Um, just do what God wants. <laughs> It's very simple, I guess, but very hard, I know. Um, there is a great, great, there's great, great, great joy, security, power, love, hope in the gospel and in knowing Jesus. Um, it's not meant to be housed in a museum. It, re it really is not. It's meant to go out. Um, let's, let's be part of it. Let's be part of how God's moving. Let's pray.